clutter of wine. Now, that is in no way indicative of the keeping of our house, that it's so cluttered that you can't see anything. But what clutter blind means is that you've been asked to go look for something or you're in the process of looking for something and you go and you take a look at all the different places that you think possibly that place, that thing that you're looking for has been. And in looking for it, as you continue to look for it, you just can't find it. And finally, in exasperation, you begin to blame others for moving it to a place that you don't know where it is. If there's nobody else there, you assume that somebody else has come into your house and moved those things. Uh, because, you know, you possibly couldn't have done that yourself. And that's when all of a sudden somebody else comes in and goes to the place that you had looked four or five or ten times and says, it's right here. You must be clutter blind. As I said, it most often happens to me. It happened even yesterday when I was looking for something, and Shannon goes, it's right here where you look seven times. I think when we come to passages that are so familiar to us, like this story of the triumphal entry, we can sometimes be very clutterblind about it. We hear the beginning of it being read, and we think, oh, yeah, 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 yeah I know this story. Yeah, yeah, I got this story. That one time that I went to church before, and now I happen to be in church again, and I get to hear it again? Wow. Yeah, yeah, I know it, though. I've heard it. Or maybe you've heard it over and over and over and over again, and you think to yourself, yeah, okay, yeah, Palm Sunday, good, we got palms, it's all good. We've done this. We know it. Um, What are you going to bring to us new? I don't know that I'm going to bring anything new to you, but I do want to give you a warning not to be clutterblind when we come to this passage. Because I think there's some particularly striking things that take place to show us what kind of king we serve and what kind of kingdom we walk in. So what kind of king we serve and what kind of kingdom we walk in. The, The first thing that we notice is that this is a kingdom and a king of purpose. There's something going on here and there's a purpose that takes place in this king, with this king and in the kingdom. If you flip in your, on your devices, or if you have a Bible, flip in that, that Bible that maybe you've brought with you, over to Mark chapter 10, right before this triumphal entry that happens in Mark chapter 11. And Jesus is talking, and he's had the little children come to him, and he talks to a rich young man who is saying, how do I get into the kingdom of heaven? And he says, you need to obey all the commandments. And he says, I've done all that. And he says, and sell everything you have, and then come follow me. And the young rich man walks away sad because he can't do that. And then in that moment, Jesus turns to those who have been walking with him, his disciples. And it tells us this. And they were on the road with him going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And talking with the twelve again, he began to tell them what was about to happen. And he said this, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now, it couldn't be any more clear, quite honestly, what he's going to do. He's telling them from the outset, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to get arrested, 
I'm going to get handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to get beat, flogged, and spit on. They're going to kill me, and three days later, I'm going to rise. And the disciples think, who's greater among us? Because that's what happens right after that. James and John, they're a little clutter moment. James and John go, uh, when you come into your kingdom, since we're going to Jerusalem, and that means we're going to take Jerusalem over, who gets to sit at your right and your left hand? But Jesus said the purpose. We're going to Jerusalem so that I can die and rise again. We're going to Jerusalem so that I can fulfill the plan that had been set out before the foundation of this world. This plan where I'm going to show God's self-sacrificing love. This plan that shows my steadfast love is full of relentless pursuit to bring everyone back into relationship with me that I have called to myself. That I'm going to move in that direction. There was a, a plan and this plan had a purpose. Not only that, we see that he's purposeful because he says to them, I want you to go and I want you to get this donkey. And there's a reason why they need to go get this colt or this donkey. Because he wants people to know what's going on. He wants those people who are there walking in to go, yes, we see what's happening. If even for a moment. For us, what that means as we follow this king and in this kingdom is that it's not by happenstance. That it's not a plan B that is in our life, but it means that there is a purpose that God has brought in to bear for us as well. That in Christ we have things that he's called us to do and there's a direction that we're moving. Ultimately, we believe that it is about bringing glory to God and enjoying him forever. That ultimately our purpose is about living lives that reflect his goodness and his mercy and his truth and his justice in this world right now. So that people can encounter this steadfast loving God who is relentless in his pursuit. Who has this purpose that says, I know where I'm going, I know what I'm doing, and I know what I'm going to bring about. And that is goodness and truth. And so this king and this kingdom that we are part of is one of purpose. But not only that, it is one of provocation. It's interesting here that as these men and women who are Israelites, these men and women who are going into Jerusalem, they're doing that for a purpose. See, what's taking place is the Passover is about to happen. And every year while Passover was happening, people would take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And the city would be flooded with those who follow after God, the Hebrew God. And they would be there as a festival to celebrate. Now, when the first Passover happened, this celebration that they're doing, it wasn't a happy occurrence. See, they had been in bondage and slavery in Egypt. And God says, I'm going to set you free. But he does that through having ten plagues. And that last plague it is the death of the firstborn. But, but the nation of Israel are all in their homes, in their places together, and they've taken a, a, a lamb and they've sacrificed it and they've put the blood on the doorpost of their house so that as the angel of death flies by, it does not enter in. And it's in that moment that Pharaoh finally says, when his firstborn is dying, go, be released, get out of here. And so they were celebrating standing up. They weren't celebrating. They were nervous and scared. They were wondering, is this really true? 
is this angel of death that we hear these cries coming out from all our Egyptian taskmasters as people are dying, as firstborn of cattle, as firstborn of, of the lambs, as firstborn are, are being passed away, are, are being given over to death. Is that blood on the post going to be enough? I mean, we've been in bondage and slavery for generations. But they stood while they ate because they wanted to be ready. God had told them to be ready because you're going to get released. You're going to be set free. So now as they begin to celebrate that, they don't stand up anymore because they've been given over in victory, because they've been set free from bondage. They sit down and they relax. And so... The Israelite nation was moving at this time into Jerusalem for this festival. And so think of the festivals that we used to have. During Easter, every year, there used to be the Fremantle Street Art Festival. And the streets were full of people walking around, bumping into one another, not social distancing, crowded, enjoying shows that were going on, music that was all around. That's what was happening. In Jerusalem, people were anticipating, waiting for Passover. But yet at the same time, they were recognizing that they were yet again in bondage. Because everywhere they looked, the Romans had brought more and more soldiers in. Because you know what they hated more than the Jews? They hated when they celebrated. They didn't want them to get happy about something that they might want to try and gain again. Oh, you're happy because at one time God delivered you. Don't think about that. And so these Roman soldiers would do things to aggravate the crowds. It's, it's been said that possibly they even would take into the temple courts, try and get into the temple courts with pigs and sacrifice them. Because they wanted to remind them that the king that they were supposed to follow was right Rome. And here's Jesus. And he says, go, go get a donkey. As we enter, as we go in this place. Now, what that means is he, he's going back to this great passage. <laughs> he's almost replaying it identically, and so you have to go to one Kings or two, uh, one Kings chapter one. And there's this place where where David is old and tired. And he had promised that his son, Solomon, who was the son that came from Bathsheba, this terrible incident, <laughs> was going to be king. And yet he was old and he wasn't paying attention. And one of his other sons from somebody else decided he would be king. And so took the throne, basically. And Bathsheba and Nathan come to David and they say, guess what's happened? Somebody's usurped your authority. And they've said that they're the king. And David says, that can't be. And so he brings out Solomon and he anoints him. And then he puts him on a donkey and sends him through Jerusalem. Catch this. The true king, the one who's anointed, is put on a donkey and taken through Jerusalem. And people stand before him shouting, praising the new king. Excited that he's there so much so that this usurper, this false king, abdicates the throne and gives it over to Solomon. No bloodshed, no fight, just gives it over. Jesus here is saying, go get that donkey. There's another reason too. 
And we'll get to that. But he says, go get that donkey and I'm going to come in. Here's another thing that's provocation. So when Jesus comes in, he's saying, your power, your principalities, the things that you think cause rule do not count. I'm over and above. I'm the right. He says that also to the people of Israel. He's saying, you're hoping for a, a certain kind of king. You're hoping for one who's going to trash the Romans. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to save the Romans as well. Because I'm the savior for all. Both Jew and Gentile. That's provocation. And he even goes a little bit further because he rides that donkey into Jerusalem. And you're not supposed to ride something into Jerusalem. You're supposed to walk into Jerusalem. You see, he's saying, I'm God. I'm the one who set the rules, and I am the one who fulfills the law. I bring it about. So it is provocation. For us, it means this. There are places in our own hearts in this kingdom that we have set up powers and principalities. That we, in our own minds, elevate ourselves to sit on the throne of our heart. And Jesus is saying in this moment, let me provoke you with comfort and compassion and say, move yourself off my seat. He is also moving and saying broadly, why do the nations rage? I am the king that is on high. I am God. I am Lord of Lords, King of Kings. I am the one who oversees all of these things and I will bring them to their completion in myself. And in his moving and in his directing, he causes us then to be stirred up to say, don't put your hope in powers and principalities that are outside of me. Our hearts get stirred up and say, no, we must follow the one true king. So whether we're in Western Australia and we have a particular party that's in power, or we look at the federal government and there's another particular party in power, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, their power is weak in comparison to the power of the one that will provoke them to find out who he is. But when we see injustice, when we see things in our own lives of injustice or out in the world, then we know that we also have a place of provocation. That we have a place to stand up and say, this is wrong and this is truth. This is a lie and this is wrong. That we move into that place following our king within the kingdom that we've built, that he's built, that is a place of provocation. But more than that, it's even a kingdom and a king of peace. So what happens? He says, go and get this colt so that I may be brought in, right? And so they begin to put things on top of this colt, uh, their cloaks, and they grab palm branches and they begin to sing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. There's this beautiful picture that's taking place. Now, Jesus picks a colt for another reason. Because Zechariah has promised this. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return your strongholds, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare I will restore you double. And then we see at the end it says, On the day of the Lord our God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. You see, Jesus is coming and he's declaring peace. Paul reminds us later as he's writing to the church in Ephesus that this one has come preaching peace to those who are near and peace to those who are far off. That in his provocation, it is not a place of despair, but in his provocation, it is a place for us to run towards the peace that Christ gives us. That in this moment, as Jesus said, my purpose is going to be to get arrested, to get beat and sped up on, to die and to raise again. In that, I will bring peace. Not war, not destruction, not a place of antagonism, but a place of an open heart and steadfast love that continues to pursue even to this day. And so as people who serve this king and walk in this kingdom, our hearts should always be moving to a place of peace. How do we walk with others where we are seeking peace between us and between God? Knowing that we can only do that empowered by the Holy Spirit because our own desires quickly sort of confuse what peace may look like and we decide it must be what I want it to be. And God says, no, it's not your peace, it's my peace. And my peace will restore relationships. My peace will bring to the end all division. That means we must be those who are quick to forgive and quick to repent. That we must be those who are quick to bring amends and quick to seek the better of the other. Now last week we talked about household codes and how we engage with that. And I want to let you know that in the coming weeks right after Easter, we're going to be speaking more about what these relationships look like. As we move towards the resurrection, after that's over, we're going to spend about six Sundays talking about how the resurrection empowers us to live in relationships. If you want to be pithy, it's called resurrection relationships. And we're going to talk about what it means for us to live in this power of peace that this king brings with all that we encounter, with God and ourselves, with our friends, as children and parents, as partners, husbands and wives, and as enemies. And so I hope that you will look forward to that, to see what God does. But as just a little taste of it, know that it comes empowered through the great example of peace, which is Jesus. And so now we see that we serve a king that is one who comes with purpose, with provocation and peace. And, and lastly, I want to see today in this passage, not to be clutterblind by knowing it so well, that we see that this is also a kingdom of patience. In Luke's telling of this story, as he's coming in to the city, he stops and he weeps over Jerusalem. He sees it and he knows what's going to happen to it. 
He knows that Jerusalem, in this bondage that they are in, are going to move from being a magnificent city, a place that is high and raised up and people long to go to, to a place of desolation because the walls are going to get torn down. The temple is going to be destroyed. In 70 AD, that happens. And Jesus sees it and he knows it's going to happen. He says, oh, if you would only see the peace that I'm bringing. And he weeps. He stops for a moment and has patience. But we see that also here in this passage. It says he, that they're all excited about Jesus. They're praising Jesus. They're, and isn't that the perfect time to stand up and go, let's take them all? Right? A little Mel Gibson Braveheart, freedom! This is what it says he does. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. And he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What? What? Jesus is patient. He is long-suffering. He is not quick to condemn. He holds back. He looks and he sees. He moves and he recognizes that our lives need patience, need places where he can slowly even step in to transform and change. That in his desire to bring provocation and peace to us, he's not going to do it in a way that is going to crush us, but he's going to do it with patience. Because listen, he comes back later and he flips over some tables in the temple. But not that night. Not that night. Actually, he goes back to Bethany. And you know who's in Bethany? Lazarus, who he'd raised from the dead earlier. And Mary and Martha. And he probably is sticking around at their house. And they're having late night tea. And they're talking about the things that are to come. Oh, how cool it would have been if, if one of the biographers of Jesus would have said, here's what the conversation was. But that's not important for us to know, obviously. Because if it was, then God would have put it there for us to know. But I can only imagine that there were those who were going, why didn't we go, Jesus? And he was like, not yet. And Lazarus was probably going, I'm so glad you didn't. And he goes, oh, the time's coming. <laughs> I'm glad I get to hang out with you a little bit more. But what we do know is this, that Jesus came and he looked and he left because he was patient. It wasn't his time. It wasn't the appropriate moments. And for us, for us who have been walking with people for a long time, who rest in bondage, we must recognize that it is not our timing that matters. It is God's timing. And sometimes God's timing for us looks so hard. And it is. So I would encourage you to go back to Bethany and sit with your friends. Sit with those that God has given you. To be with them. To prepare your heart for the things that God is doing. Because as he's provoking those you're walking with, he's provoking you as well. He's moving you to go, my desire to see them change rests more on me knowing that I want God, them to see God's love, than for me to be able to go, I accomplished something. Because in the end, the king, deserves all glory 
and praise. The last thing that we see here is this. But this is a kingdom of salvation. When they say Hosanna, they are saying, save us. When they're saying Hosanna, they're saying, save us. A lot of them that day had already been saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes. That was a common refrain during Passover, during the festival of Passover, as people were entering into Jerusalem. They would see them and said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But when they see Jesus, they say, save us. Blessed is he. Today, if you are not sure who this Jesus is, I ask that God will direct your heart to yell out Hosanna to him. Save us. And for those of us who have been walking with this king who loves us and is patient and is full of peace and longs to provoke us with the purpose that he has for us, let us also yell out. Jesus, let these words be your words, and if they're not, let them fall away and burn up. But if they are, let them take root in our lives, in our hearts, so that we can bring you glory and do the good work that you have called us to. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand up and sing in response to these words.